Let's read Daniel chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and 60 cubits wide. And it set up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that the king Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, You will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know your majesty that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, Certainly, your majesty. He said, Look! I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. 
Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other God can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Thanks, Justin. The word of the Lord. Daniel chapter 3. Morning, everybody. Uh, so if you need a Bible, you can uh, snag one from a neighbor. That's totally cool. Just uh, scoot next to somebody and, and look off their Bible. Or you can grab one of the red Bibles uh, that uh, are somewhere close to where you're sitting and, uh, and, and turn to Daniel 3. Man, it's good to have this story read. Uh, in fact, the first time, I'm starting to think back to the first time I heard this, this story, uh, the story that, that really has this ability to capture our imaginations. And I was kind of looking around the room, especially at some of the some of the younger people sitting close to me, and just hearing the story. Kids are kind of in like rapt attention. Maybe not all kids, but like it has this incredible power to just draw us into it. And and that's how I first encountered it. Um, it was uh, as a kid on my parents' bed. Uh, this was a, a practice I'm so grateful for that my my parents did. Uh, they just made this regular rhythm where we would, my sister and I would crawl up on my parents' bed and they would read scripture to us. Uh, we had these like storybook Bibles. And, and I remember like encountering the story and it being just like really, really inspiring for me. Uh, I remember seeing the little pictures, right? Like the, the illustrated pictures of like these men, young men in like bright clothes and turbans. And I thought, well, that you know, just seemed kind of strange to me. And then thrown into the fire and they're boldly standing in front of the king, and, and God delivers them. And, and I remember as a kid thinking, man, I want to be like these three guys. Maybe you've had the same experience, right? If any king, I, I remember like feeling this, if any king ever asks me to bow down before an image of gold, I will not do it. I remember like the, the resolve, right? I'm not going to do it. The issue is no king has ever asked me to do that. And I'm guessing that's probably the same for you, right? That this has not happened, that you've been summoned and said, bow down before um, this image. It's, it's never, that scenario has never presented itself, so I've never gotten to test my mettle in the fires of adversity like that. At least not in the same way. At least not in the same way. See, what I find is that the temptations that face me and the temptations that face you are much more subtle than this. That there's kind of this, this subtle seduction to, to sort of put our allegiance in someone other than Jesus. And, and to give our, our ultimate trust and to find our identity in someone or something other than Jesus. And, and so this story is so amazing and so powerful and so confronting. 
I mean, it really is. And, and I'll be honest, I've, I have like, I told Jesse before first service, I have like four sermons in my head right now. Um, because what happens when you like, you, you, it's almost like you, you step into a passage like this, and it's like you step into this cathedral, right? And you, you like step into this massive cathedral, and then you just start looking around, and you're like, this is so awe-inspiring. Like, do we talk about this, or do we talk about this, or do we talk about this? So it's like, I, I've got all these different sermons, um, and, and so we'll see what happens in this service. But it, it's just a reminder that, that God's Word is so, so infinitely deep. And here's the thing. Sometimes we come to the Scripture to encounter God, and what we need from God is comfort in our time of affliction. And I'm guessing some of us are in that place today, that, that life, whatever the circumstances are, we feel afflicted. There is adversity, fires of adversity in our lives. And what we need is to recognize that God is with us, that we are not alone, and we need to find the comfort in that. And so some of us need that, and I hope and I pray that God speaks that word to you today, that God comforts us when we are afflicted. But do you know the other side of that is also true? That sometimes God afflicts us when we are too comfortable. Sometimes, sometimes God wakes us up to, the, to the, the fact that we have gotten too comfortable in our present setting, in our present arrangement, and we need to sort of be jarred back awake. And this text will do that to us as well if we're open to it. If we're open to it. This is, this is a deeply, deeply confronting story. Um, so it begins, right? It begins with Nebuchadnezzar, king, king of Babylon, who we've been introduced to over the last couple of weeks, so I won't go into that. But he throws a party, a little backyard barbecue. He's got the campfire going, throws some shrimps on the barbie, um, sends invitations to all of his, all of his besties. And, um, and they come, and he's like, hey, we're going to have some music, some, you know, dancing. It's going to be kind of fun, festive time. Come, come hang out. Is that the story? That's not the story. Who, who's at this event that King Nebuchadnezzar arranges? Who's there? Anybody? The satraps, the prefects, the governors, the advisors. Like, you, like why in the world does it repeat that phrase? It's almost funny, isn't it? Like, as, as Justin's reading it, thanks, Justin, for doing that uh, so well. But it's like, the, the, the person who's telling this account, who's telling the story of Daniel, wants you to understand and wants us to understand that this is everybody who's anybody is at this thing. Right? I mean, these were powerful people, people who were rulers over others. They were the people who had the power to make decisions over large territories. They were governors and preceptors. I don't even know what a satrap is, but it sounds really cool. Um, so these are the people who gather. Now, why in the world do they come? Is it they responded to an invitation to come? No. Why are they there? Because he made them an offer. They couldn't refuse. Right? I've been working on that. Um, what's going to happen if they say no? Somebody did not like that over here. What's going to happen if they say no? We're not coming. Right? We talked about this last week. Off with their heads. They are there because they're commanded to be there. They have no other choice. He has given them an invitation they cannot say no to. They're commanded. They're summoned. So uh, he comes, and, and King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, he, he has this image 
built, right? There's this, this 90-foot-tall image. That's what 60 cubits is. Uh, this 90-foot-tall image, and, and it's in this, the plain of Dura. In modern day, uh, Babylon is in modern-day Iraq. And so you, you have this, this, this picture in your head, right, of, of these people coming, these massive thousands of, of powerful people rolling up to the plain of Dura, and they see this massive image. And, and as they get close, they see Nebuchadnezzar sort of probably on his throne close to the image, and there's probably a military force that's there to sort of enforce his rule. And, and this image, we're not told exactly what it's of. Like, I, I mean, was it an image of one of the Babylonian gods? We don't know. Like, Babylon had like this old pantheon of gods, or polythe- polytheists, or lots of gods. So maybe it was an image of like the god Marduk or something like that. Um, you can do more research if you want to about the Babylonian gods. We don't know. Was it an image of Nebuchadnezzar himself? Like, you know, this kind of egomaniac, did he make an image of gold of himself? We don't know. We're not told that. But one thing we do know for certain is that this image that was set up represented Babylon itself. This image was like an embodiment. It was a symbol of the empire as a whole, a symbol of Babylon. Now, empires have a tough job, right? I mean, it's tough being king of the world. Because everything, if you are an empire, your number one sort of um, role is to what? Expand your territory. Conquest. How do you do that? You send your military out, they conquer territories, and then they colonize them. They like, you pull them under sort of your banner, your ruler, uh, rulership. And so that's what the kingdom of Babylon did. It just expanded territories. That's how Daniel got to Babylon. And, and, and so they're, they're, empires are given this really tough job of saying, as you conquer these foreign people, people with different cultures, people with different languages, how do you assimilate them all? How do you bring them all under one cohesive rule? Well, you do it by, number one, impressive displays of force. Impressive shows of force. And you, in some way, you have to get them to give their ultimate loyalty to you. Their ultimate loyalty. So this is what this is. This is what this whole thing is in the plain of Dura in Babylon chapter 3. This image that represents Babylon and commanding people to bow down and worship it. Now, powerful nations. Here's, Here's the thing. Powerful nations are always tempted to get drunk on their own power. I mean, we see this. this world history, powerful nations, superpowers, empires, they are always tempted to get drunk on their own power and to exalt themselves as rulers, as rulers of the world who have manifest destiny to make their will done in the world. And they're willing to conquer other people at the end of a sword or at the end of a weapon to bring them into their power. These nations, they, they feel like they have a godlike power. Now, this, this whole thing of taking, uh, taking religion, taking faith in God and nationalism, our national identity, and fuse it. What are the two things you're not supposed to talk about at a party? Religion and politics, right? Well, we're talking about that in Daniel chapter 3. It just goes there. Sorry. Um, so what happens if you take faith, religion, and politics, and nationalism, national identity, and you fuse those two things together? Do you know what you get? Like, for one, you get the power that has caused more bloodshed in all of human history. 
It's the most, the most powerful, the most violent concoction the world has ever dreamed up. Religion, nationalism. And you get this thing called civil religion. Civil religion. It's where you can't quite figure out where does my, where does my like, faithfulness to God begin and end and where does my faithfulness to my country begin and end. They're all just sort of they're intertwined so much so that you can't quite extract yourself. That they're, they're, they're just sort of they're fused like that. Tony Campolo famously once said, when you, when you mesh religion and politics, it's a little bit like meshing ice cream and horse manure. <laughs> it doesn't have a very big effect on the horse manure, but it makes the ice cream taste like horse manure. That's what happens. Um, so, this is the setting here, this, this civil religion, this fusion, this fusion of religion and faith. And so uh, it's this kind of mock worship service, right? There are instruments there. Like, you remember the, the, the instruments? The harp, the zither, the lyre, like satraps playing their whatever. Do you know what this is? Anybody know what this is? Take a guess. What kind of instrument this is? Plong, plong. Lyre! That's what it is. I've always wanted to play the lyre because you just sound angry probably every time. So what kind of instrument are you playing over there? Lyre! That's how I would say it at least. So it's a lie. <laughs> that was lame, sorry. So it's this big spectacle. It's a worship service. And it's like, okay, when you hear the harp, the zither, the lyre, the, the flute, the pipe, all of that stuff, all kinds of music, you will fall down and worship or else. It is worship under duress, right? You, you will fall down and worship or else. And so here's the scene, right? Thousands, thousands of leaders, powerful people. The music begins to play. They strike up the band and a sea of people fall on their knees and everyone is bowing. Everyone is bowing except three. Can you put yourself in their place for a second? I mean, God has elevated you to this place of governor in Babylon. You were a conquered person, you were a slave, but you were brought into the king's service, and God has been with you, and God has like, given you guys the abilities to interpret these dreams, and you've been rewarded now, and, and Nebuchadnezzar has elevated you to this position of power, and all of a sudden, here you are. You are surrounded by these thousands of people, and they're all bowing down and worshiping, and you are standing. It's unbelievable what they must have been going through, what they must have been feeling. Um, and, and when they talk to the king, it's interesting. Notice what they say. They say, we can't. We can't do it. And notice they don't say, I, I can't do it. They say, we can't do it. There's this we language. For Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it's this picture, and I think this is an important message for us to hear today, that we stand together. We stand together. Um, there have been all sorts of like psychological studies done about how you get a person to conform to something they don't want to conform to. How do you get a person to conform? Do you know what the number one element that you need to do to get them to change their ways? Isolation. Get them alone. If you separate a person from their group of friends who are going to support them, they will change. They will, you, can, you can sort of um, get them to conform. Maybe you've seen those candid camera those, those old videos of people who like walk into an elevator and like you've seen, I've showed them in a sermon before a couple years ago where somebody walks into an elevator, you know, the door opens, they, they come in, stand, push a button, but before the door closes, like a couple other people come and stand in and they face the back of the elevator. 
Like, so three or four people now are standing facing the back of the elevator, and the, the poor person who's in there by him or herself, like, just starts to feel the pressure to turn, and then, like, nonchalantly just conforms to everybody around him. Because you're, you're alone. They did it with hats. Like, the guy's got a hat on, whatever, and everybody walks in and takes off their hats. And so, like, you see the person squirm a bit and then, like, takes the hat off. We will conform if we are alone. And, and so, there's, this so there's so much power in saying we stand together. What would have happened if it had just been Meshach? Just by himself out there. You know what I think? Like, I, I put myself in that position, and you and I think I'd have been tempted to do in all honesty. You'd be like, hey, the music starts to play, and it's like, oh, let me just tie my sandal, um, right? I'll just, like, I'll just pretend. I'm, I'm like, maybe I won't cause a scene. Nobody will notice. Um, or maybe, here, here's what I would have been tempted to do. What if I just bow, and I'll just, like, do the motions like everybody else is doing because I don't want to make a scene. I want this to be a big deal. I know that image of gold. It's nothing. It's not really a god. So I'll just do this, but I won't really worship it in my heart. You know, like, I'll just, I won't really do it in my heart. But that's not what they do. Like, they, they stand together. They stand together. A couple years ago, uh, I got the chance to hike the Buffalo River Trail. It's a 20-mile trail. It's like a two-day two hike um, in Arkansas. It's this beautiful trail, and, and you cross. At one point, you cross the Buffalo River. And when you cross a river, when you're backpacking, you've got everything on your back, right? And, and so if you fall, this is a problem because your food is wet, your sleeping bag is wet, your clothes are wet. It's a problem. So you want to make sure you don't fall. And, and Buffalo River, it wasn't all that deep, you know, maybe knee deep. So you take off your boots, you roll your pants up, you, and you start crossing the river. But the rocks are slippery. The current wants to, you know, push you down. And so the best way to make it across the river on your feet is to join arms with somebody else. And so we've talked about this. Like, we stand in a culture that is moving. There's a current that wants us to conform to the patterns of this world. But Scripture tells us, no, 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 be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Do this together. Stand together. We link arms together. We need each other. Like, you and I, church, we need each other. We need missional community. We need these regular rhythms where we're in each other's homes, we're praying for each other, we're loving each other, reminding each other of our true identity. We need rhythms where we come like this and we worship and we sing our hearts out because we want to, to this Jesus who we worship, who's the King of kings and Lord of lords, who's given his life for us. We stand together, we stand together. So then... Um, Notice, notice what they say when they're, when they're in front of the king, right? This is what they say. King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your hand, your majesty's hand. But even if he doesn't, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will neither serve your gods or worship the image of gold you've set up. I mean, do you hear the tone that they're speaking to the king with? I mean, it, it depends. Like, I, I could read this differently. But what I hear in this is this, there's this poise and this sense of peace in the, in the imminent threat that they're going to lose their lives. They have a trust in God. They say God can deliver us. We have no question about that. God has delivered us from so many things already. But even if he doesn't, like, even if we get thrown into the fire and we die, it's okay. We're not afraid to die. You can, you can do to us what you want, but we're not going to bow down and we're not going to worship. Now, the text actually gets really funny here, and you miss it in the English, but it says his attitude toward them changed. 
And it really, if you read in the text, it's his image changed. So he has set up this image, right? And all of a sudden it says his image changed, his face changed. So here's a, here's a, a guy who has this image set up that everybody should come and worship, but he can't even control his own image. He's furious because he doesn't know what to people, doesn't know what to do with people who will not bow to his pressure. But these, these, these guys, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they're just like, they're so, they're so at peace. They're so confident. And, and they're so um, respectful. Your majesty. Like, that's what they say. There's no sense of like, stick it to the man. You know, there's, there's no sense of like, you dirty, you know, infidel. Like, there's none of that. There's just a sense of respect and care. Sometimes, um, Sometimes I hear Christians, and here, here, here's where it's about to get real. Um, just to warn you, like, about to get real. Um, sometimes I hear Christians, we have gotten so wrapped up in partisan politics of our nation that when, and we've aligned ourselves with them, whether on the, 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 the left or on the right, we've aligned ourselves with them so much so that when something happens that we don't like or we don't agree with or doesn't align with our party and our values here, that we will sort of spew out with the same kind of venom and vitriol that the rest of the world uses. We just put a Christian stamp on it. And we feel justified doing it. And when we do that, it's a really good indication that our values have gotten far too entangled with the values of this world. This is, this is, this is sort of hard, right? Like, we, we are called, like the, these men, these three men, they are in Babylon. They, they are working, they're governors, they're in the system, they are working in the belly of the beast, right? And they're using all of their God-given abilities to bless Babylon, like, they want Babylon to thrive. They want it to succeed. They want it to be great. But they're not willing to bow to it. They're not willing to conform to it. They're not willing to be like everybody else. What does it look like for you and I to want to bless this country that we live in? Whatever country it, it happens to be, anywhere around the world, but we live in this country. It was, it was the country we were either born in or we've immigrated to, and we, we want to care about it. We want to love it. We want to be great neighbors. We want to be great citizens. We want to use our gifts and our abilities to make it better. And yet we refuse to play the games that says, you know what? No. Our country's enemies are our enemies. Our political party's enemies are our enemies. We refuse to play that game. We refuse to bow to that pressure. This is, man, this is the place the people of faith are called to live in in this stream that continues to want to pull us toward it. We have a dual citizenship. Like we have, a, we have this citizenship of the country we live in, but we have an ultimate citizenship that we have chosen. This one for many of us who were, who were born here, we have an image on our passport because it was a country we were born in and we can thank God for that. But we have this other citizenship in the kingdom of heaven that we've chosen, that Jesus has made available to us through his life, his death, and his resurrection. And here's the thing about the kingdom of God. Jesus said uh, his number one message as he was walking the earth was the kingdom of God is among you. It's at hand. It's here and now. And Jesus was coming to, to proclaim and to introduce the kingdom of God. 
Jesus, at the end of his life, as he's standing before Pilate, just, you know, hours before he would be crucified, he's standing before Pilate, and who was Pilate? I mean, he was a ruler of, the modern, of that modern-day Babylon. Its name was Rome. And, and Pilate looks at Jesus, and he says, Jesus, are you a king? Here's what you've been accused of. You've been accused of going around claiming to be a king. And here's what Jesus says. Um, my kingdom, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but my kingdom is from another place. Jesus, Jesus made no compromises. He said, yeah, I, I'm, I'm establishing a kingdom, I am a king, but my kingdom looks very different from the kingdoms of this world. In Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul writes to those who have, who have been baptized into the kingdom of God, who have become citizens of the kingdom of God, right? Um, through, through their allegiance to Jesus. And here's what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 3. He says, but our citizenship, remember, our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we, do, do you feel this tension? This, this tension between our citizenship and the kingdom of God that always looks like Jesus and a citizenship in, in the nation we reside that we want to bless and want to use our gifts to serve, but we will never bow to it. So what is our role? What is our role to this nation that we live in? Well, 2 Corinthians 5 spells this out for us. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says this, We are therefore Christ's, what does the text say? Ambassadors. Ambassadors. What does an ambassador do? If you got tagged to be an ambassador to Honduras, what would your role be? You would be sent on behalf of your sort of country of origin to go and to do what? And to represent it. To represent it through its dealings and your relationships and all that. You would take the values of your country that's sending you and you would live them out there. This is what we're called to do, friends. That, that we, our citizenship is in heaven and we're called to be ambassadors of the kingdom of God here and now in this world. Which means if we find ourselves getting so caught up in the partisan politics of, 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 of the mudslinging and the, you know, just sort of the, the anger and the, you know, the, the displays of power that we see from the rest of the culture, then we have lost our distinctiveness as ambassadors of the kingdom and we need to repent of it. We need to repent, and we need to remind ourselves that, no, 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 my citizenship is in heaven. I am a, my, my, my ultimate loyalty is to Jesus. My ultimate loyalty is to Jesus. The church is kind of an embassy of the kingdom of God. That's what we are right here. You're being trained as ambassadors. Like in the church, this is what we do. We, we help each other be ambassadors of the kingdom of God in this world we live in. That's what the kingdom of God looks like, the church. Um, so, just to kind of clarify this a little bit further, the kingdom of the world, it always runs on commands enforced by threat. Even at the end of the story, like, did you catch that? At the end of the story, like, Nebuchadnezzar, he's, like, overcome. These three men have been saved through the fire. And what does Nebuchadnezzar say? He issues another decree. And what does he say? Okay, everybody worship this God now. And if you don't, I'll burn your houses down. Like, this is all he knows how to do is force people through threats of violence. I will cut you to pieces and turn your houses to rubble. That's all the kingdom of the world knows how to do. But the kingdom of God is compelled. We are compelled to follow because of God's salvation. The story in Daniel 3 begins by these satraps, prefects, governors, and advisors at gathering around this image because they have to. They're commanded to. But the story ends 
with all these powerful people gathered, pressing in around these three men who were saved in the fire. Not because they have to, but because they want to. This is what the kingdom of God is like. We're compelled to follow because of God's salvation. The kingdom of this world says our cause is worth killing for. Our cause is worth killing for. That's what the kingdom of the world says. And the kingdom of God says our cause is worth dying for. That we will gladly lay down our lives for. We have no need to defend ourselves in this. Our God's able to save us, but if he does, if and if he doesn't, we'll gladly give our lives for it. But our cause is never, is never one that we will kill for. This is what the kingdom of Jesus looks like. And, and we stand in this long line, this long line of Christians who have lived this out faithfully. We have lived this out faithfully. If you want to be inspired in your faith in a whole new way, we have a book in the library called The Martyr's Mirrors. And it's not like happy bedtime reading. It is horribly gruesome stuff. But it will it, it inspire your faith and, and challenge you to your core to say, you know what? There are so many faithful women and men throughout history who have given their ultimate loyalty to Jesus and they have paid the price of their lives. But you know what? They faced death with a sense of peace and calm that the world was awestruck by. There's a story about this guy. I'm sure I'm going to mispronounce his name. His name was Jean Voters von Sayak. Wikipedia. Um, and he was... In 1572, 1572, this Anabaptist movement was kind of in full swing. We're Anabaptists. Like, this is the stream of the Christian faith we swim in. And Anabaptists were those who said, you know what? The church and state should not be fused like it was in medieval Europe. It shouldn't be. Uh, In medieval Europe, what happened is when you were born, you were baptized into the church, and you were baptized into the state at the same time. Those two were completely fused. And Anabaptists said, hold up. As we read the New Testament, we say, no, no, you choose to be a part of the church. Like, a- adults, you choose it. And so they pulled those things apart, and they started rebaptizing people to say, no, no, you, if you want to choose it, you can, and we'll baptize you. And that was a, that was a punishment, uh, uh, an offense, rebaptizing people, which is what Anabaptist means. It's not anti-Baptist. We're not anti-Baptist. Anabaptist. Uh, it means, again, baptizers. And so they started killing these Anabaptists. And this, so this guy, uh, Jean Voters von Sayek, um, he was in, in Holland, 1572, and he gets, um, he gets arrested for being an Anabaptist. That's it. That's his charge. He, he, he challenged the power of civil religion. That was it. And so he gets arrested. He's put in prison. He's brutally tortured in prison. But while he's in prison, he gets a chance to write a couple of letters and he writes these letters to, and they've survived, right? Uh, he writes these letters to his friends, his family. And, and, and here's one of the things he says. He says, I would rather go with Daniel into the lion's den than kneel before the wood or the stone or the gold or the silver or the bread or the wine or the oil. Rather go with the young men into the fiery furnace than worship the image which was set up. And he has boldly faced his own execution, and he was eventually killed. He was burnt at the stake. And the accounts say that he, like so many other Anabaptists and other Christian martyrs, that he gave his life with songs of praise on his lips. That there was no fear of death. 
And I need to be honest, as I read this story in Daniel 3, and I, I put myself in the place of these three young men, and as I read these stories of faithful women and men throughout history who have boldly done this, I need to admit my poverty of soul. That I, I don't know. I don't know what it's like to have that kind of peace in the midst of adversity, in the midst of the fires of adversity. I don't, I don't know what that's like. But I am humbled that the flame that these faithful women and men have passed on, it now resides in us. It's now ours. And we have discernment to say, what does it look like for us? What does it look like for us today, in our day, in our circumstances, in our ways, to surrender ourselves completely to Jesus and to his kingdom, and to be, to be willing to bless this world, but to never bow to this world to trust, to trust that Jesus is present with us in whatever the fires of adversity are that are facing us. That God does not stay at a distance when his people are suffering. And whether they're suffering from physical pain, whether they're suffering from relational issues in your family, whatever it is, the fire of adversity that you are facing right here and right now in your life, to see yourself in the presence of Jesus. That Jesus is with you. He, he comes with you to save you in the fire, not necessarily from the fire. So God, we, um, God, we don't know what all this means for us. But God, we know that we stand together. God, we know that we are here because we want to be here, not because we're coerced to be here. Jesus, we choose to follow you. We choose to sit at your feet. We choose to be your disciples. We've chosen to be baptized into your kingdom. Jesus, we're here to be trained as ambassadors. Help us, help us know how to do that, Lord, because we don't have the answers. Jesus, we want the kind of peace in our lives, facing whatever adversity it is. We want the kind of peace that only you can give, that only comes from being filled filled with the power of your spirit, your presence. So fill us now, Lord. God, help us to see that you are with us, that you are with us and you will never leave us. Give us hope, give us courage, and give us peace. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord.